Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and bailing twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Taste is is something that we sort of make up in our brains, and it, it's based on the flavor we get on our tongue, the aroma of things that we pick up in our nose and in our soft palate, how you're feeling that day. It's based on your memories of the dish. So everybody knows that you can take crappy beer, like a PBR, which most of the time doesn't taste great, but... At the end of a, of a very hard day's labor on a hot day, you know, to me, there's nothing better than an ice-cold PBR. 
That was Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji is the author of the best-selling cookbook, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. Today, Kenji joins me for a pop quiz to find out how much he really does know about the science of cooking. I'll be speaking to him later in the show. But first, it's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street with Raina Javeri, who's going to talk to us about making a lemon buttermilk pound cake. Hi, Raina. How are you? I'm well, Chris. I was in Atlanta a few months ago visiting one of my kids who's in college there, and I went to a restaurant called Aria. Uh, the pastry chef's name is Catherine King, and she has a recipe called buttermilk lemon pound cake, which turns out actually not to be pound cake, <laughs> but it's sort of a hybrid, and it does a few things quite differently. It has whipped egg whites like a sponge cake or angel food cake. It has cream butter and sugar like a typical yellow cake, and also use leaven or baking soda in the cake as well, which is very much not like pound cake. So... It's lighter and has a wonderful flavor. So uh, we decided to make it here at Milk Street, and what happened? So this is kind of an enlightened pound cake, as you said. Um, There's a few things that are important here. One is not to overbeat the egg whites. So we're going to whisk the egg whites only to soft, glossy peaks. The next thing that's important to remember is not to overcream the butter and sugar, because otherwise the cake tends to deflate more easily with that extra incorporated air. And the last thing that's lovely about this recipe is that it uses buttermilk, which adds some tangy flavor to the cake. Now, when you fold everything together, we learned uh, from Claire Patak in London to sort of underfold the ingredients together. Do we do that here too? Yes, that's exactly right. For this recipe also, we're going to fold the egg whites into the batter, but very, very gently until they're just combined. Now, we haven't mentioned one last thing. This is baked in a bundt pan, not in a loaf pan, which makes it look great. And it also gives you more cake. It's bigger than a pound cake. But sometimes it's hard to get cakes out of bundt pans, right? So here's the bonus tip for this recipe, is that we want to use baking spray, ideally, to make sure that the cake releases completely from the bundt pan. And in a pinch, if you don't have baking spray, the other thing you can use is softened butter applied with a brush in all the little crevices. Raina, thank you very much. Lemon buttermilk pound cake. It's one of our favorite recipes in the last few months. You're welcome. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. All of our shows are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. Okay, Sarah, you ready for a new batch of questions? I sure am. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Daniel Hunley. Hi, how are you? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, one of my favorite places. It is a good place. I actually, I bought an electric guitar on Broadway in Nashville, what? Tennessee. Yeah. That's the great Nashville experience. Yeah. <laughs> was that when you had hair down your back? No, it was two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that many years after my hair... Okay, retreated so what, from my what back. folly had you buying a guitar? Player? Well, it's like if you're a lousy skier, you buy nice skis, right? <laughs> anyway, on to more useful culinary topics. How can we help you? Ever since I've started listening to you guys, I've quit mincing garlic in olive oil sauces and instead of just been crushing it and putting it in there. But I have always cut out the shoots from the center of garlic, and I was wondering if that was something that was necessary to do. And then an even bigger question of, is shoots in your garlic fine? And what about green garlic as well? Are those things that are acceptable in cooking, or should you find a different source of garlic when you keep well, finding? Well, wait, wait, wait. So you're buying garlic in the supermarket, and you're finding a lot of green shoots in the center of the cloves? 
sometimes uh, even the tips of the garlic itself will be a little bit green. Yeah, you need to find another purveyor. That should not actually happen. Yeah, what that indicates is that the garlic is old. Yeah. And when the garlic is old, it's almost like it's been dehydrated. It's much stronger. It's almost bitter. Yeah, it's not good. Okay. So the problem's not really the shoot. It's the garlic. Okay. And if that's all you can get, I would just say use less of it in a recipe than you normally would have because it's going to be that much stronger. I mean, it's a good thing you're not mincing because the more you – I was cooking with someone recently and I said, why didn't you use like a garlic press? He was mincing. He said, well, you know, you don't want to harm the Disrupt. garlic. Disrupt it because mm-hmm. you'll release so much flavor and it gets bitter. So just crushing a clove, especially when it's cooked in oil – that won't make it bitter and it won't make it strong. Now, there are times, though, we just had a big fight yesterday in the office about grating a clove of garlic to sort For of sure. to finish something, which I guess I is, put it in aioli. Yeah, that's fine. Good there. But if, right. you, if you have four or five cloves of garlic, just smash them, throw them in the oil, and then you're done. I still mince my garlic. I know you do. I know you do. You know what? In a garlic press, you know, I went to the Gilmore Garlic Festival years ago. That's in California. And there are a whole bunch of nutcases, including a woman who dresses up like a head of garlic. Can you imagine? That's not exactly a flattering look. How does she do all the clothes? I I actually grew up in that area. Oh, so you know. When I was younger. Oh, yeah, my when God. I was younger, I well, had garlic ice cream. Well, so. yeah. Oh, God, uh, it's awful. Did, did garlic <laughs> wine and garlic chocolate. Did, oh, did the de- um, the woman have green shoots, too? I, no, 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 because it was fresh garlic. Oh, fresh it was California, she was of, course. Fresh, of course. I remember them getting very upset about ever disturbing the garlic because yes. you're upsetting its natural oils or something. Respect the clove. Right. So garlic presses are a no-no from their point of view. Now, can I ask you a question? Because right. you're so fastidious about French are technique. Are you talking to me? I'm talking you're to you. Talking to me. You're talking to me. You're not talking to Daniel. <laughs> When you mince garlic, do you cut it like you would an onion? You want you do the, the horizontal slices? If it's really and, large, I will. But other yeah. than that, no, I smash just, it and just then smash just start and, and then just start chopping. Whew, yeah, I was worried about you. But anyway, did we remotely answer your question? I think we I did. think sort you of. did. I think I just need to find another garlic purveyor. You absolutely so. do. Uh, that, that's yeah. bad. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Guys. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Take absolutely. care. Absolutely. Have a good one. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello. Who do we have on the line? Hi. You've got Cheryl. And where are you calling from? calling from Charlestown, Massachusetts. Oh, mm. nice. How can we help you? Well, I had a question. Um, considering, you know, all our grocery stores, you can get, like, pretty much anything at any time of the year, what's the best way outside of a, a farmer's market to know what's, like, best in season? Like, how do I know what to buy when? Well, there are lots of websites. There's both government websites and then there's just general websites. So, but Are you talking about what to buy when in the supermarket or in a farmer's market? In the supermarket, yeah. Yeah, so you know, we know we can find strawberries or asparagus all year round because they come from all over the place. But if you really want to buy it when it's in season, how do you know that it is right. in season? And uh, that's what I would say is just check out. Google what is in season in April. What difference does it make? Because they source in supermarkets produce from all over the world, which different places in the world at different times during the year. So, I mean, strawberries in in July or June in Boston, a supermarket, aren't necessarily going to taste any better than strawberries in February because they're sourced from different places, right? Well, if it's- They always taste awful. Well, no, no, but sometimes you get supermarkets that it is local, and they will say it's local. That means it's generally going to be more flavorful, didn't have to travel as far, it wasn't bred to travel a million miles, and it's in season. Well, have you ever bought a vegetable at a supermarket and went home and go, boy, that really tastes good? Yes, I bought strawberries, as a matter of fact. But it was locally grown. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. As long Fine. as it was locally grown. For example, Fine. even at Trader Joe's, they'll say where okay. things came Fair from. Enough. We know that Whole Foods does that, yeah, which is very true. expensive. 
but then there's Trader Joe's and there's other places that will say what it is. You know how I used to know what was in season, and I needed to know because I was a chef and I wanted to be seasonal. This is when I worked at the Harvest in Cambridge. Is I got Gourmet Magazine, and I organized it by month. So I put all my Januaries together, all my Februaries together, all my Marches together, and then I would look through, and you would see that things would pop up. Hmm. You know, in those six Januaries, you keep see recurring, although there's nothing growing in January. But, you know, a better thing would be, say, April. You would see strawberries and know, oh, it must be strawberry season or asparagus, you know, or something like that. So that's another way to look at magazines. Magazines are generally featuring things that are in season, you know, food magazines at that particular time. That's another place to find out. I just think if you went to the supermarket and bought one of each thing and went home and were blindfolded and people <laughs> have to taste it, I mean, there isn't that much flavor. I, I think I, going to the farmer's markets. So, so you're saying don't ever go to a supermarket? No, you just have <laughs> to live with it. It's just that the farmer's markets sometimes have actually wonderful stuff, and I would Definitely go there. Oh, if you can. Absolutely. And that's the best way to know what's in season because that's the only thing they'll be selling. Not everybody can afford. Sometimes farmer's markets are pricey. So you sort of have to work with your supermarket. I do like supporting the farmers, though. Yeah. And like farmer's markets, like sometimes it's just like once a week they're in your area, right? That's right. So you have to supplement. Exactly. You want to buy your food from people with weathered sunburned faces and rough hands. (laughs) <laughs> but then you know it's real. That's my goal anyway. Okay, so. Cheryl. All right, take care. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, please give us a ring at one eight five five four bowtie That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Terry from Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, love Memphis. So what is your question today? So thank you so much. I love, love the podcast. I was listening to several in a row, and one of the episodes was about the chicken in the French bag. Was it it chicken or salmon? salmon? I think salmon, yeah. Sorry, salmon. And then another podcast, another caller was asking about putting acid in tinfoil, so my question is, can you put salmon in the parchment of the tinfoil like you guys were talking about, cooking it in a pan for 12 minutes and put lemon and such? Because the other question was not to use tomatoes with tinfoil, I believe. So I was curious about the difference. Well, let's describe the recipe. You take four fillets of salmon, center cut, put them in a large sheet or double sheet of aluminum foil, wrap it up, and then put it into a skillet and cook it on top of the stove. So the heat goes through the foil into the fish. So you get browning on the bottom, but it's also gently cooked. I think at the end when we developed that recipe, we ended up putting all of the sauce, whatever we used, the gremolade or pesto, came on after mm-hmm. we cooked it. Uh, so the fish itself isn't going to have a problem. It cooks in 10 or 15 minutes, so that's fine. I'd probably hold the lemon until after cooking and you take it off the foil. That's what I would do. Because there is a reaction yeah. between foil and acidic ingredients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've ever covered a tomato sauce with foil directly, you'll see it looks discolored afterwards. So, yeah, I think generally don't use acid. I mean, if you want to do the parchment method, you use parchment paper, although recently I came to understand that the white parchment has been bleached, bleached, and so you want to stay with the natural, the the, the brown paper. And you could do that in the oven, but the reason, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, you did the salmon with the foil was so that you could still brown the skin. You had the benefits of browning the skin, getting crispy skin, while cooking the fish sort of in a parchment-enclosed situation 
even though it was indeed aluminum foil. The benefit of that being it comes out really what moist. Sarah, Sarah used to cook with Jacques Pepin at a French restaurant. And she really wanted to say on papillote, but you, you didn't. No, I didn't. I'm trying to behave myself today. <laughs> it was hard. You just it, wanted to say no, that. No, no, it's right. I like fish in a bag. <laughs> so the fish itself is no problem. It cooks quickly, and then add the lemon juice after you take it out. That'll solve that okay. problem. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Terry. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Susan Shores from Hickory, North Carolina. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Okay, I'm calling about pomegranate molasses. Okay. I've got some that's outdated by a year and a half, and I Googled it to see if I could still use it. And it said if I didn't see any mold on the top that I could. So I tried a recipe with it, and I thought that the recipe had a medicinal taste, like cough syrup. And I thought, ah, man, is that what pomegranate molasses is supposed to taste like? You know, it's interesting you say that. About a month ago, someone said that to me. There was an expired date, which I, I thought it lasted forever. Right. It's like, got like all that sugar and acid A thousand in it. years Why from now, wouldn't it? people yeah. can still... And I looked on the bottle, and it was a year out of date. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, yeah? given that sugar level and acid, I can't imagine... It wouldn't go bad, but it might lose its brightness. It could. You know, that happens to wine when it gets old. It does. It just seems like it's so... Sugar. It's like honey you can have well, dug like up balsamic. from Roman times. Yeah. It's still good. I found a recipe to make your own pomegranate molasses. Would you recommend trying that? How do you do it? It's four cups of pomegranate juice. And how do you get that? You squeeze fresh? Oh, no. You, you buy it. I guess. Go buy it. But I went and priced it last night, and it was $11 to get the amount that you would need. Oh, And I well, thought, man, no. that's a lot. No, but wait a second. Keep going, because this might be worth your while. So then what happens? A half cup of sugar and two tablespoons of lemon juice. Put it in a heavy-bottom saucepan, medium heat till the sugar dissolves, and then reduce it to medium-low for 70 to 80 minutes. And then how much do you end up with? Didn't say. A lot. It didn't tell you what you were looking for when you were done? It just said a thick syrup. Four cups, you said, to begin with? Uh-huh. About a cup. And that cup will last you months. The problem is you don't use much of it. A yeah. cup might last five years. Well, you can use it the way you use balsamic. I really That's see true. the two of them as interchangeable. So if you like and use balsamic, you can certainly use pomegranate the same way. Okay. I would go buy a new bottle immediately and do a taste test. And that'll tell you okay. right away. So, and I'm going to do the same thing. Would you do it? Okay. Okay. It's like buy, buy small amount of spices, buy small bottles of pomegranate molasses. Right. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you, yeah. Susan, thank from you. Hickory, North Carolina. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, a science quiz with Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's author of The Food Lab. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, 
Man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Kenji Lopez-Alt has always evidenced a strong interest in the science of cooking. I remember one day he tried to make his own liquid smoke using a modified Weber in the alley. And he's used that skill and passion when in 2015 he produced one of the very best cookbooks of recent years called The Food Lab. 
Today, I've asked Kenji on the show to give him a pop culinary quiz to see if indeed he can answer some of the most vexing food science questions of our time. Welcome to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. So uh, let's get started. Madeline Kamen famously said in the making of a cook that searing meat seals in juices. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I've heard that repeated by hundreds of cooks over the years. Uh, Does searing meat seal in juice? Uh, no. I mean, I think you and I both <laughs> both know the answer to that one. Um, the answer is no. I mean, there's a very easy way you can test this yourself. If you just take, a, take a, a thin steak, put it on the grill, sear one side really hard, you know, high heat, get it as good a sear as you possibly can, and then flip it over. And you'll see after a couple minutes, you're going to start to see juices bubbling out of that top surface that you just seared. So, you know, it's very clearly not sealing in anything. And and what you find actually is that if you sear your meat at the beginning of cooking, you actually end up losing more juices than you would if you sear your meat at the end of cooking. Whether whether it's a prime rib or a steak, you start it over low heat or in a low temperature oven and then sear at the very end, um, and you find that it actually retains more juices that way than if you sear at the beginning. Uh, Marinades. People still use marinades, and they're under the impression that somehow they tenderize meat. True or false? Uh, well, it depends on the ingredients in the marin in the marinade. Um, you say marinade, I say marinade. Um, it, yeah, it really depends. You know, there are certain ingredients, uh, proteases, which are enzymes that break down proteins, can definitely tenderize meat. Sometimes too much, but um, you know, you find them naturally in things like papaya and pineapple. You can also buy meat tenderizers, which are often papaya or pineapple-based. There is also proteases in soy sauce um, and a couple other things. Um, you know, they can tenderize meat. They can also turn the meat, end up turning the meat mushy. So if, you, if you've ever stuck a piece of pork in like a pineapple-based marinade and left it sitting um, overnight, the next morning you can like almost push your finger through it because the proteins have broken down so much. So yeah, the answer is yes. Some marinades do tenderize meat. Most do not. And really, the purpose of a marinade is not um, not necessarily for tenderization. It's more. It's generally more about flavor than than texture. Here's one. Uh, I was talking to Meathead Goldwyn. I'm sure you know him. Uh, yeah, Chicago, yeah. and he said, um, you know, everyone says, and I've said for years, a lot of people have soak your wood chips before adding the charcoal because you get mm-hmm. more smoke that way. And he said, Hey, pal, uh, you know, toy boats are made out of wood. They don't soak up water. Uh, (laughs) it it does no good whatsoever. And he said he tested it overnight by soaking wood chips and they only gained one or 2% by weight. So is that a, is that a ridiculous thing to do? You know, I, I read that in Meathead's book and on his website, um, amazingribs.com. And yeah, I didn't believe it at first either. And so, yeah, you know, a couple summers ago, I tested it myself as well. And I, and I got this basically the same results that he did, which is that, they absorb a little bit of water, but it's not really enough to make much of a difference. Um, and you know, and when you're actually cooking it, it barely makes any difference at all. To me, it, it reminds me of that old advice where they say never to wash mushrooms because they absorb water. And, and as you know, I'm sure it's actually not really true. Mushrooms right. might absorb a little bit of water, but you know, it's nothing that's not going to cook off in about 15 seconds worth of time. Right. So yeah, I, I never, I never bother soaking my wood chips anymore these days. Okay, I've got a roast, let's say a top round roast. I, I, bra- okay. I have three of them. I braise one, I roast one, and I simmer the other one in water. And I cook them all to the same internal temperature, let's say 125. D- does okay. the interior of the meat in each of these three cases substantially different or basically the same? Well, if you're if you're cooking them to 125, you're not really braising in that situation. I mean, to me, the term braise implies that you're 
going to be cooking for a much longer time and right. at a slightly higher temperature so that, you know, you're, so you're really triggering that breakdown of connective tissue. If you're only cooking them up to 125 in the very center, then, you know, yeah, what, what's, what, at that point in the center, the meat is essentially going to be the same. You know, it's not like liquid's going to penetrate in there. It's not like liquid, you know, energy is energy and, and the, the energy is diffusing from the outside of the meat into the center. So what, you know, what's on the exterior is not really going to affect what, what's on the interior if you're coming to the same temperature. Right. What you might see is that you're going to, there's going to be a different temperature gradient in there. Because you're cooking with a different medium, you're going to be transferring energy at a different rate and in general, the higher the rate of energy transfer, the sharper the gradient you're going to see inside. So you, you know, so you get that sort of bullseye pattern where the very center is maybe 125 degrees medium rare, and then it gets more and more cooked towards the outside. Right. So that, that temperature gradient might change depending on the exact temperature of the oven and the exact temperature of the water you're simmering in. But the meat in the very center, if it's at 125, it's at 125. And and it's really not going to be any different. So uh, how about an acid? You have a soup that's dairy-based. You add some lemon juice mm-hmm. or an acid, and it starts to curdle. What, d- how can you prevent that from happening, and why is it happening? Well, I mean, a- acids cause proteins to coagulate. Preventing it from happening, well, I mean, there, there's a couple ways. You can, you can add some sort of... Um, uh, liaison, you know, like you can add a little bit of like a starch or something like some thickener to your soup that's going to help ensure that even if your proteins start to denature, they're sort of kept buffered from each other so they don't really tangle up with each other and crosslink. In the, in the same way that an emulsifier will help an emulsion stay stable, a, a thickener can help a soup or something like that stay stable. You know, the, the other is some good old fashioned like mechanical beating, you know, when, when you're adding your acid, whisk it in very, very, whisk it in very, very vigorously while you're adding that acid in so that it doesn't end up concentrated in one area where it's really going to affect those proteins and sort of, you know, cause a sort of chain reaction. Or if you've already gone too far and your soup has curdled, you know, just throw it into a a blender and blend it back up. And and that should solve most of those problems, um, except in extreme cases. The, The other thing to note though, is that milk the natural acidity of milk will change over time. So as milk sits in the fridge, it gets more and more acidic. And so one, you know, it could be that you made this, you're making like a, you know, a a salmon chowder that gets finished with a little bit of lemon juice at the end and you've made it 10 times. And then on the 11th time, suddenly it curdles. Um, And, you know, the reason could be that on that 11th time, your milk was maybe a week older than it was uh, Mm -hmm. in the previous times. So, you know, when I'm adding acid to a soup or something that I know has a danger of curdling, um, I always whisk vigorously and add the acid in slowly and, and, you know, just to make sure that I don't dump it all in and and suddenly end up with a curdled mess. Uh, Let's talk about steaming as a cooking method. How is it different than boiling or, or, you know, baking or roasting? When should you use it and why? What's specifically wonderful about it or different? Well, I mean, steaming is nice because unlike boiling, it doesn't wash away, um, or at least not as much. It doesn't wash away flavors or nutrients or things like that. So, you know, if, if you t- if you take a pound of asparagus and throw it in a gallon of boiling water and simmer it until it's tender, when you pour that water down the drain, uh, you'll see that it's it's green, right? And and that's all stuff that that came off the asparagus. You do the same thing with in a steamer, and the water is, remains basically clear. A little bit might drip off the asparagus, but it remains basically clear, which means that all that all those nutrients and flavor are still in the asparagus. So, you know, steam, steaming is nice in that sense. Um, is, is the temperature of the steam, the ambient temperature in a steamer, hotter than boiling water because it takes more energy to convert water to a gas? It, well, it, 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 it can be. I mean, the, the one important thing to remember, though, is that 
Temperature is not actually the best measure of how fast something is going to cook. What you really care about is the rate of energy transfer. Right. Temperature-wise, steam might be a little bit hotter, but you know, if you have a, if you have a big pot, by the time it reaches the top of that pot, it's probably going to be a little bit cooler. What really matters is is the rate at which energy gets transferred. And so, when when you have steam and and it's converting back into back into water on a surface, it, it's doing actually sort of the opposite of what evaporation does. You know, so evaporation you have you have water on a surface um, or sweat on your arm and the energy it takes to convert that sweat into vapor um, and for it to evaporate off your arm, that cools down your arm. Steam does the opposite. There, there's this vapor that, that's very high energy and when it converts into water, it's not just the temperature of the steam that matters, it's also the energy that it releases as it then converts into water and drifts back down to the pot. Into the pot. Um, so that's yeah. actually going to heat up the surface of your food as well. So it's it's a relatively efficient way of, of cooking um, because it it heats rapidly, um, and then you also don't need to use a ton of water to to get a very similar effect to boiling. I just learned something. I didn't I didn't think about the energy that escapes when you convert a gas to a liquid. That's okay. I, that score one for you there. That was good. Um, uh, <laughs> I could have just been making it up. You know, you don't make stuff up. <laughs> uh, you know, we've been brining for a long time right. now. Uh, n- of course, people have been brining for centuries. And now salting, people talk about salting, mm-hmm. and I'm now a salter, not a briner. Could you talk about the difference between, let's say, salting the Thanksgiving bird and mm-hmm. letting it sit for a while in the fridge versus brining it? Is there a difference, and is one method better than the other? Um, yeah, well, there is a difference. It's hard to say one is better than the other. You know, I can tell you I prefer salting as well. Um, so, you know, brining brining or salting, they, they essentially work the same way. The salt will break down and dissolve muscle proteins so that when the bird uh, is cooking later on and those muscle proteins are starting to contract, they don't contract quite as much, and so they end up holding on to more liquid. It's sort of like, you know, if, if you imagine a turkey muscle, um, a muscle fibril in a turkey as sort of like a tube of toothpaste full of poultry dent, uh, when, when you're cooking it, you're essentially squeezing that, and you're squeezing the juices out. So brining makes it so that you're not squeezing quite as hard. With a traditional brine, you're talking about a salt, submerging the bird completely in a salty liquid, and what happens in, in that situation is that you are breaking down some muscle pro- protein, but there's also an exchange of uh, liquid going on. So you're, some of the juices from inside the bird are diffusing out into the brine, and some of the brine is diffusing into the bird. But the issue is that what's happened now is that your turkey is now diluted. You've filled it with uh, water. And meanwhile, some of those turkey juices have end up, ended up in the brine that you're throwing down the drain. Salting will initially draw out some liquid from the chicken or the turkey uh, through osmosis. And then uh, the salt will dissolve in that liquid and it forms a sort of very, very concentrated brine right on the surface of the bird. And that has a very similar effect to a, you know, to a traditional brine where eventually it'll break down the muscle protein and the salt will work its way into the meat. If you do these things side by side, uh, you'll find that a traditional brine, you'll wind up with a turkey that's a little bit moister. So it is a little bit moister to do a traditional brine, but the advantage of, of salting over a traditional brine is that you're not diluting flavor. So if you taste them side by side, you'll find that the one that was just salted and rested is slightly less juicy, uh, but it's a lot more concentrated in flavor. So here's an easy one. How do emulsions work, like uh, in a, mm-hmm. you know, mustard added to oil and vinegar? Uh, okay, well, so an emulsion is, uh, I mean, it, it it's essentially a, a stable mixture of two things that don't like to mix well together. So in, in cooking, it's almost always 
oil and water we're talking about. Um, so I, I, the analogy I like to use is I think of it as sort of like a, like a high school dance. You know, you throw a bunch of teenage boys and girls together in a room, and maybe they start out relatively well mixed together at the beginning, but eventually, you know, one boy sees another boy and starts talking to him because they feel more comfortable. And then the third boy sees, oh, there's two guys talking together. I'm going to go in and talk with them. And eventually you end up with all the boys on one side and all the girls on the other. And, th and that's similar to how an unstable emulsion works. Fat molecules are attracted to each other. <laughs> um, and so when one bumps into another, it sticks. And then when a third one bumps into that, it sticks again. And eventually you, you grow these bigger and bigger groups until they're completely separated. So there's a couple ways you can form a stable emulsion. One of them is the, sort of the, the classic way you make a vinaigrette where you very slowly drizzle in oil. So if, if you imagine this, like if you think about, say you have a gymnasium full of girls and you, and you bring an entire busload of boys and you dump them all at once, um, it's going to be very easy for them to stay separated. If, on the other hand, you let those boys into the room one at a time and tell them to mingle and kind of force them to mingle, they're much less likely to bump into each other and form one big group. And, and I'm sorry, I'm assuming all of this is sort of, you know, gender normative here, so I don't mean to offend anyone by that. But um, another way is to use a a physical emulsifier. So in a vinaigrette, that would be something like mustard, which has uh, a thing called mucilage in it, and it essentially thickens up the liquid. So if, if you imagine that same gymnasium now, you have the boys and the girls, um, if you were to then pour in, you know, pour in a, uh, a tanker full of, of molasses in there, it would make for a very messy dance party, but it also makes it more difficult for people to walk around, and so people are sort of more stuck in place. And, that, and that's what happens um, when you add mustard or, say, honey or, you know, any kind of thickener to an emulsion. Hmm. Um, the, the final way is a chemical emulsion. So that would be something like lecithin. That is a, it's a chemical that you find in, uh, in egg yolks. So chemical emulsifiers work because they have one hydrophilic end and one hydrophobic end. So an end that's attracted to water and an end that's attracted to fat, and it acts sort of as a liaison between the two. It's sort of like spiking the punch at the um, at, at the mixer. You know, the, these these chemicals make it so that the molecules are not quite as afraid of each other, and so they end up more stably uh, mixed. So, uh, a couple more questions. Let's talk about how we taste. Uh, most people think that we're talking about the palate and the tongue, and uh, that that's really how taste works. <laughs> but how does it really work, and how is the brain involved with the, the notion of taste? Taste is is something that we sort of make up in our brains, and it, it's based on you know some sort of sensory input. So it's based on the flavor we get on our tongue. It's based on the aroma of things that we pick up in our nose and in our soft palate. It's based on the texture of things between our teeth. It's based on the sound foods make in our ears. It's based on how you're feeling that day. It's based on your memories of the dish. So, you know, ev everybody knows that you, you can take um, crappy beer, like a PBR, something like that, which most of the time doesn't taste great, but at the end of a, of a very hard day's labor on a hot day and you're sweating, you know, to me, there's nothing better than an ice cold PBR. And, and the reason that it tastes good to me is because, you know, back when I was working in restaurant kitchens, that was our shift drink at the end of service. So I drink it and it immediately makes me remember those fun early days of cooking and it makes me feel good. And so the taste of it, you could say that, well, it tastes exactly the same, but it's actually not true. You find that people think that Eggs that are darker orange taste better than eggs that are lighter yellow. But what, what you can do is if you, if you take a batch of scrambled eggs, split it in half, add a couple drops of orange food coloring to one of those batches, and then cook them side by side, 
almost everybody will say that the darker orange eggs taste better, are richer, even though they are literally the exact same eggs. And so, you know, it, it, it proves that taste is something that's really almost completely made up in our brains. <laughs> like most of our lives, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the last question is this. Is there some aspect of food science, because you've been doing this a long time, that, that just really completely takes you aback? Like it's totally surprising and you can barely understand why it's true. Oh, man. Um, I mean, the, the big one, I guess, would be um, would be pasta cooking, which is something that, um, you know, Harold McGee wrote about it in his, I think, in his second book, or maybe in the New York Times column. But, you know, the, the tr tradition says that you should cook pasta in a large, large volume of boiling water. And what you'll find is that if you do it side by side, you can in, in a large volume of boiling water and a small volume of water where you just dump the pasta in, cover it in cold water, and bring it up to a boil, you can barely tell the difference. And this is something that I discovered actually after my book was already published. But what really matters is how the pasta was made. So real old world pastas are made using brass dyes. You know, they're extruded using brass dyes. Mm -hmm. And then they're dried at relatively low temperatures. And what you find is that that gives the pasta a very rough exterior, and it also um, leaves a lot of sort of free starch. And so that kind of pasta gets very sticky when you start to cook it. Modern pasta, on the other hand, is mostly extruded through Teflon dyes, huh. and it's dried at a relatively high temperature. Um, and that high temperature drying actually deactivates a lot of the starch. Um, with a modern pasta, you can get away with using a very small volume of water. And you can even get away with, with starting with cold water. With an old-school pasta you do want to use a larger volume of water. The thing is that when you have a large volume of water or, or a small volume of water and it's on a burner that's giving out heat at a certain rate, so the exact same burner, and both of them are at a rolling boil, when you drop a pound of pasta into either one, it's going to take the exact same amount of energy to bring either of those back to a boil because the only energy you need to add to there is the energy it takes right. to raise the temperature of that right. pasta up to the boiling temperature of water. And, that, and that's when your water is going to start boiling again, when the contents of that pot are back up to 100 degrees. So it's true that a large volume of water will lose less well, well, the temperature will drop less when you add pasta to it, but it actually takes the same amount of energy, regardless of the size of the pot of water, to bring it back to a boil. And the thing is, with a large pot of water, you actually have a much bigger surface area on that pot, so you're losing energy to the air in the kitchen um, a lot faster than you are with a small pot of water. You know, I, I'd forgotten that I have to be really careful around you because when I start throwing out half-baked theories, <laughs> you actually know the answer, man. You're just like, <laughs> I just got nailed. Uh, that was good. That was Kenji Lopez-Alt, author of The Food Lab. Is cooking about passion or is it about science? You either cook with your heart, as some people say, or your head. Well, I now think that this dichotomy, the gulf between science and passion, really is a false one. You know, Picasso started studying art at age 11, and Michelangelo was apprenticed to a famous Renaissance artist at the tender age of 13. So understanding the mechanism that drives a beautiful clock doesn't make that clock any less a work of art. So perhaps art and science are really not strange bedfellows. In fact, they usually walk down the street hand in hand. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, Milk Street travels to the streets of Seoul to taste the new KFC. That would be Korean fried chicken. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. 
Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617 617- Two four nine three one six seven, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to check in with our regular guest and New Yorker writer, Adam Gopnik, on why we should worship celery and parsley. Adam, how are you? I am fine, Christopher. How are you? I just have a feeling you're going to be in a serious mood today. We'll see. You know what I would say I'm in, Christopher? And this will shock you. I'm in a somewhat Christian mood because what I felt Hmm. like talking about is that great New Testament theme, how the last shall be first. And specifically, how the last herbs become the first herbs. Because I have always had a prejudice 
against the two lowliest of the green things in the refrigerator, and they are, in my view, celery and parsley. I have never been able in my relatively long cooking life to see the point of celery or <laughs> understand the purpose of parsley. The only times you ever really eat celery is in bad tuna salads, right? And you always sort of resent it when the uh, proportion of celery to tuna has gone out of whack. And I have always avoided putting celery in the recipes that call for celery. And I always thought it was just one of those vestigial things that people insisted on with no good reason. There's one exception, though. Lobster roll. And lobster the, rolls, yes. The only reason it's good in lobster rolls, you need some crunch with the soft lobster, that's all. This is true. The only halfway decent case I'd ever been able to make for celery is a little bit of crunch in something that was right. too soft or chewy. But the other thing that I felt similarly about was parsley. Now, of course, we all know that parsley is the kind of sad 1960s addition to the plate designed to decorate without really delighting. So much so that in making salsa verde, and there's nothing I enjoy more in life than salsa verde, I think of the truth is that if I were condemned to live on two things forever, they would be tomato sauce with pasta and salsa verde with whatever grilled protein I had on hand. But in making salsa verde, I thought snobbishly, I realize now in retrospect, though I thought creatively at the time, that the only way to do it was with mint and cilantro, and I left the parsley out of my salsa verde. Well, I am sure you can anticipate where I'm going with all this. I have been through a humbling revolution in my own palate and in my own practice in the last few months, and they involve reevaluating and for the first time truly appreciating the glories of celery and parsley. Uh, when it comes to celery, first of all, I happened to add it to a black bean soup, and the black bean soup came out better than it had ever been before. Hmm. And I realized when I did a little digging that that's the classical and traditional role of celery. It is, as someone once said, vegetable salt. It is a thickener and a taste intensifier rather than an ingredient to be appreciated in itself. And so for the first time, I began to use celery in exactly that spirit. And now I have become a true man of celery. But my celery <laughs> revolution was, Chris, you'll be glad to know, rather trivial compared to the parsley revolution. I was completely out of cilantro and mint on a night when what my family, my children in particular, wanted a bit of grilled fish with salsa verde. And not having the classy herbs of fresh cilantro and fresh mint on hand, I made a salsa verde with parsley. Have you made salsa verde typically with parsley, Chris? I, I do like it with parsley. And I'll let you speak first, because I, I, I bet we're going to come out of the same place on this. But go ahead. Salsa Verde made with parsley, with some anchovies, a little bit of mustard, one clove of garlic, and, of course, about half a cup of olive oil, is simply a far more delicious Salsa Verde than any Salsa Verde you can create using the much classier and more fashionable herbs of mint and cilantro and the rest. And there I was, having made the last first, the least fashionable, the most old-fashioned, the most easily dismissed of all the things we keep in the green larder, celery and parsley, had suddenly become essential to my cooking. This was a deeply humbling experience. <laughs> we have to learn new things all the time in cooking and emancipate ourselves from ancient and overstudied taste. But 
Very often, don't you find, Chris, it turns out that the last are indeed first and that the oldest wisdoms of the kitchen are the truest ones. Well, if I may rephrase it a little bit, (laughs) you need the ordinary to make other things extraordinary. I mean, in a Broadway musical, you need the chorus. Nowadays, it's called the ensemble. That's the lemon basil name for the chorus. The the ensemble. You need the ensemble because you're going to have someone stand up in front of the ensemble and and do the solo. I, I think... Parsley and celery provide a base on which other things can rest, but without that, there's no foundation, right? I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the things that we learn and relearn, not just in cooking, but in life generally, because when have I been reluctant to leap from cooking to life? <laughs> one of the things we, we learn and relearn is that there's usually a logic buried in tradition. This has led me to open up the door to all other kinds of things that I might have dismissed for too long. I am fascinated now by the bullion cube. I am fascinated by the logic of the bay leaf. How many times have we put a bay leaf in a stew just out of reflex rather than out of reason? I'm the anti-bay leaf king. I've, I've refused to do that for years, but now I guess you and I are traveling the same road. I've rediscovered bay leaves. You're right. Exactly so. That was my. That was the third in my in my uh, triumvirate, because having recognized celery and parsley, I thought, what else is there in the kitchen like that, which I have been dismissing, but which is uh, in every old recipe I look at. And as I say, you know, it has a broader application, right? Because we're always trying to sort out what in the wisdom we pass on to our kids is real wisdom, is the democracy of the dead, things that genuinely matter and that we want them to learn, and things that are just vestigial, things that are just derivative and have no real value. Uh, And as always, the kitchen is a kind of laboratory where we study the uses of tradition, where we try and distinguish between the traditions that are essential to our pleasures and the traditions that are merely instilled and inessential. And for me, celery and parsley have now leapt from the bottom drawer of the inessential to the top shelf of the undismissible. Adam, you were like all good cooks who eventually arrive at simplicity. You know, c- cooking is transformation of the ordinary. It, it is alchemy. And you say celery, parsley, bay leaves. Wonderful things transpire even with the most ordinary ingredients. And that, in fact, is the definition of cooking, right? It's the definition of cooking, but I would, I would say it's also, <laughs> in a certain sense, the definition of tradition. And I have become... Oddly, and to my own surprise, a more traditional-minded cook and a more traditional-minded thinker in some ways just in the last six months. We learn and relearn the lesson that norms are there for a reason, that traditions and practices have a logic of their own, and that in the littlest leaf of parsley lies the potential of a bright and sparkling, a scintillating salsa verde. (laughs) I thought you were going to say life. (laughs) Adam Gobnick, the, the man who questions every rule and then sometimes go back to the original learning. Exactly so. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Chris. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. This week's Milk Street Basic is an equipment recommendation from Sarah Moulton, my co-host on the show. We like to ask cooks and chefs around the country about one piece of equipment they find really indispensable. And Sarah said it was the 8-inch Wilton cake lifter, a bit unusual. You might think she uses it to lift cakes, but she doesn't. It looks like an oversized bench scraper. It's 8-inch square blade. It's very thin. 
has an upturned handle on one side with a non-slip grip. And here's what she uses it for. Any big job, like moving a head of chopped broccoli, a bunch of chocolate, onions, tomatoes. And it's also very good, by the way, at picking up liquid. So if you want to move food from one place to another, and a whole lot of it, Sarah Moulton suggests using the 8-inch wide Wilton Cake Lifter. Now we're headed to the streets of Seoul to take a tour of the city's Korean fried chicken haunts. Reporter Jason Struther and his food tour guide, Joe McPherson, are standing at a restaurant about to try a flight of fried chicken. Okay, this is our little survey. First, we have our original fried. This is original 90s-style fried chicken. The one in the middle is yam yam, which is a sweet, spicy garlic sauce. Uh, the last one is garlic chicken, which originated in southwestern Seoul in a very blue-collar area in which they've been stewing garlic, chopped garlic all day long, and they baptize the chicken in the garlic. I caught up with Jason later on to learn about the country's explosion of fried chicken and how it differs from the American KFC. Hey, Jason, how are you? Not bad, Chris. How are you? We're discussing something that probably nobody's heard of, which is Korean fried chicken. Chris, it's it's, it's the new K in KFC. Okay, so here in America, we don't really have many variations on that theme. But from what I know, that this is a very different proposition. So what, what, is, uh, what is Korean fried chicken? Sure, Chris. Well, I think it comes down to the sauces and marinades. Here's some tape from what my food tour guide Joe had to say. They have a, a little bit of like, an Asian five-spice aroma to them. And a lot of Korean fried chicken is slathered in t- some type of sauce. That's the other mark of the Korean fried chicken. So what are some of the major variations on a theme? I assume we're talking about dozens or hundreds of of varieties here, or they all go into a couple or two or three categories. Uh, There's a place uh, not too far down the street from where I live that has like a pecan-crusted chicken, and I I, I recently saw a place that does, you know, a a fried chicken that's kind of covered in melted cheese of some sort. So it's really... (laughs) imaginative and, and experimental. Um, I had chicken last weekend with a friend of mine, and uh, it was not fried. It was uh, smoked, but it, it had been marinated in, a, in gochujang, which is, you know, the quintessential Korean chili paste. So, of course, they, they like their spicy food over here. So here in the States, of course, we eat fried chicken out of hand. If you have a, a sweet chili sauce, cheese on it, is, is this eaten out of hand or they actually sit down with a knife and fork and eat it? A lot of places will give you two forks. You don't see many knives and chicken joints here in Seoul. Another type of interesting bite-sized chicken I tried is called padak, and my food tour guide Joe took me to a place that serves it. Here's some tape from us there. This is called padak, which is um, a boneless fried chicken. I would say this is more of an American-style fry because you see all the nooks and crannies on that one. Um, yeah, it's, it's, dredged in, it's dredged in regular flour. It's fried. Yeah, it's served in a, in a black plate with uh, a, topped with leeks and carrots. Uh, beautifully done. And we have this sauce that looks, it looks kind of like pureed fruit, but it has sort of a peanut butter flavor to it. So how did, how did the fried chicken thing get started. Was this before Kentucky Fried Chicken showed up? 
pretty well before. Let's maybe even back into the 1950s. Remember, the U.S. military has had bases here in Korea since. Well, really, since the end of the when since the Korean War ended in a ceasefire back in 1953, so there was some exposure to American-style fried chicken, uh, you know, way back when. Uh, but commercially in Korea, it didn't get popular until the 1970s. Uh, that's when uh, a small shop called Lim's Chicken opened up, and they did the first Korean-style fried chicken. And from what I understand, uh, it was cooked in a wok. It was very simple. Uh, but what we see today, uh, the there are around 50,000 chicken restaurants in Korea. And compare that to the 19,000 or so KFCs worldwide. This didn't really become a thing until about 20 years ago, Chris. I'm late to that party. Jason Strother, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the tour of Korean fried chicken. Chris, one thing I, I should add, uh, just because I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't put this in here. You know, when Koreans go out and have chicken, they're just not eating chicken by itself. It has to go with beer. There's this concept here called chimake. Chi is for chicken and mek is for mekju, beer. And the two are inseparable. So if you go to any chicken restaurant, they're also going to serve beer. And I'm a teetotaler, but from what my friends say, Korean beer goes best with fried chicken. Chicken and beer. Well, <laughs> at least that's not new. <laughs> Jason, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Chris. Take care. That was Jason Struther, a reporter based in Seoul, South Korea. The fact that there are 50,000 fried chicken joints in Seoul makes me worry for the future of America. You know, our fried chicken offerings seem downright tame by comparison. So let me suggest a new economic rule of thumb. Why don't we judge a country's economic future by the proliferation and variety of its fast food? Now, on that basis, I think it's time to invest heavily in the future of South Korea. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.